Hey there. Before we get into today's episode, I have a quick request. If you love this show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. It's one of those things that helps other people find our show. Plus, we like hearing what you're enjoying and want more of. It is so quick to do, and my team and I really appreciate it. So thank you. Let's get to the show. This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. Today, how America's problem with classified documents makes us less safe. We've been hearing a lot about classified documents lately, turning up in all the wrong places. Today, the National Archives confirmed that it found classified information among the documents Donald Trump removed from the White House and brought to Mar-a-Lago. A small number of classified documents had been found in the garage of President Biden's Wilmington residence and in a room next door. So the material was in a locked garage? Yes, as well as my Corvette. Yet more classified documents slipped out of the White House and into the private home of a top official. These documents were uncovered at the Indiana home of former Vice President Mike Pence. The whole point of classification is to protect national secrets. Things like war plans, intelligence sources, and sensitive communications. And there's a whole system around how classified documents get stored, reviewed, and possibly marked for declassification years later, when they're no longer deemed sensitive. Now, recently, we've learned that some former government officials have been holding onto files they weren't supposed to. But historian Matthew Connolly says America has a bigger problem. Way, way, way too many documents are being classified in the first place. Even if you're just writing to a colleague about meeting for coffee, if you think that at some point, maybe in exchanging those messages, you might eventually mention some classified program, it's just safer just to classify even that first message as secret. In recent years, roughly three documents were being marked as classified every second. And this tendency to err on the side of classifying is creating a massive backlog. It makes it much harder decades from now when people have to go through and, and review it all. And so what that means is we're just not going to have the history of our times, not unless we can figure out some solution to this problem. For the past decade, Matthew Connolly has been working with big data and machine learning with a team at Columbia University to better understand what information the government has been hiding from its citizens and why. In his new book, The Declassification Engine, he argues that having so many classified documents makes it harder for the government to protect truly sensitive information. And to get things under control, the government needs to declassify more. I started our conversation by asking him to explain who gets to decide what gets classified and how. Everything to do with how national security information is defined, and especially how those policies are actually applied day to day, that comes down to presidents and their executive orders. Presidents really do have awesome power, even sovereign control over secrecy. That is, they are allowed to decide what the rest of us are allowed to know about the things that they decide relate to national security. And practically every president, going all the way back to Harry Truman, has issued an executive order where they try to put their own stamp on the secrecy system. And they'll say, you know, that if you want to classify something at the highest level as top secret, 
it should only be information that would cause grave damage to the nation if it were disclosed. Mm, that and, is the criteria. That's yeah, the, the bar. They're that's saying. right. And it's a high bar, you would think. And in fact, there are only a couple of thousand people who are allowed to decide whether this or that technology or program should be classified as top secret or secret or confidential. But there are millions of people who have the clearance to review those records. And every one of them, if they're producing records that are related to those classified programs, they have to classify at the same level. Mm. So, so what happens is, you know, at the top, there's the idea that we're going to control this system and we're only going to have the most sensitive, most important information classified at that level. But the way it actually works is that you have millions of people who are keeping secrets for their own reasons. And there are examples where presidents have found out they can't even find out how many special access programs there are, like how many of these compartments there are where people are creating secrets every day. And, and just to get into the, the details of it, I mean, what kinds of secrets? What are, what are some of the motivations that you've been able to identify? Well, you know, in some cases, it really is, you know, national security information. There are things like war plans signals intelligence, sources and methods, whether covert operatives or, you know, the kinds of techniques they can use to intercept and decrypt communications. But what you also find is like criminal activity, you know, people doing things they know were illegal and using the classification system to make it impossible for anyone else to know about it. There are lots of examples like this. For years, it was kept a secret from the American people that the FBI was actively spying on civil rights groups and leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. It was only decades later, when documents about that spying program were declassified, that we learned how extensive this operation was, how the FBI illegally wiretapped civil rights leaders, and at one point even urged King to take his own life. Another example, probably less well-known, was an effort in the 1970s to screen incomers to the United States. What we found out was that the U.S. government for years was running a covert operation where the FBI was investigating everybody who applied for a visa to come to the United States if they had an Arabic-sounding last name, mm. right? Because even then, mm. the mere fact that they had a name that might have been an Arabic name was enough to cast suspicion and make them think they could be assassins or terrorists. I mean, maybe I can ask you to give us some examples from history that show who and what classification is meant to protect. You can find examples where people quite explicitly would say that we need to keep this secret because if it came out, it would be embarrassing, mm -hmm. right? There's an example, for instance, where when they were conducting radiological experiments on American citizens, sometimes children, sometimes the elderly, they said that we have to keep all the secret because if it gets out, there might be legal consequences. So you can find you know, explicit examples of that. And on the other hand, you can find people who can't give any explanation, really, for why it is that they destroy records they know are incriminating. One example example of that would be the CIA, right? When it finally came out in the 1970s, how they had a long-running program where they were dosing people with LSD to try to turn them into assassins, they decided they were going to destroy all those records because they thought it would just be too embarrassing for more of that to come out. So there are examples like this where you find people on the one hand using classification to cover things up, right, to avoid legal liability, possibly even criminal prosecution. And then you can also find people using destruction, right, destroying records to try to make it impossible for anyone to find out what happened, even many decades after the fact. Matthew, you are calling for radical transparency from our government. And you say that this current culture of secrecy, it wasn't always this way. Can you explain? What well, seems radical now, but 
when I looked at the first 150 years of American history, what you find out is that this whole, you know, national secrecy complex is a relatively recent invention. You know, it's something that only started in the Second World War. Before then, the U.S. did have spies. You know, we, we did have secrets, but this was typically only in wartime, hmm. right? And so whether we're talking about the War of 1812 or the Civil War, for a time, they would run agents, right, to intercept communications. But as soon as peace returned, that wartime establishment would be dismantled. And so even in wartime, you find examples like Abraham Lincoln, for instance, who in some ways was more radical than Julian Assange. I mean, Lincoln wanted to release American diplomatic communications almost in real time. Just a few months after American diplomats were deciphering encoded communications and having confidential meetings, Lincoln wanted those things published. He wanted them out in the open. His argument being what exactly? Well, he thought that if more people understood what the union was fighting for, then they would have more support around the world. Mm. And he wasn't wrong about that. You know, he was in effect like going past the governments with which he was negotiating. He was trying to appeal to their publics. And in fact, he was incredibly successful in doing that. So to me, that's a kind of model. You know, you can see how transparency can work. And the recent Ukraine war, I think it's another great example. I mean, President Biden, to his credit, when he realized the intelligence was showing that Russia was preparing for an invasion, he decided to release a lot of that information that would normally have been kept secret. And it actually gave him a big advantage in the information war that ensued. Mm, at the start of the war you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. The U.S. gained a lot of credibility because we were warning our allies, in fact, warning the world out in the open about Russia's plans and intentions. And when those came to pass, then it showed that the United States wasn't lying. You've mentioned this. Others have pointed this out, too, of course, that the Obama presidency, the Obama White House, was one of the most secretive administrations in recent history, right? Yeah, it was notorious among journalists. Like they would talk about how difficult it was even to talk to Obama administration officials off the record when they were trying to talk about things that that administration didn't want out in the public. He was also very careful at image management. You know, it was very hard to get pictures or video out of the White House that wasn't approved by the White House. But when it came to national security information, it was even worse than that. I mean, there were more people prosecuted under the Espionage Act for leaking information during the Obama years than all previous administrations combined. Right, right. And, you know, to the extent we can estimate how many times officials classify information, the absolute peak was during the Obama years. It was over 90 million times a year. That's three times every second some administration officials deciding they were creating information that the rest of us were not allowed to know. Wow. After that, they just gave up on trying to count. <laughs> Where to the point, they can't even now estimate how many times officials are keeping secrets. And what has changed since the Obama years? Well, the system, I think, has gotten even more chaotic to the point where now it seems completely out of control. You find things, for instance, like hotel reservations that were classified at the highest level. On the other hand, you find intelligence, like breaking news, you know, about things that almost certainly would have been secret at the time that were not classified. Things, for instance, like sniper manuals, you know, or recipes for explosives, things that I think most of us would agree really don't need to be released. And if they are, could actually endanger our, our fellow citizens. Mm. It's just an example of how our government has been struggling, you know, to identify the information that really does have to be protected closely. Yeah. You know, I've been speaking with some of my friends who are in D.C. and work in government around all these leaks and the classified documents news. And some of them have said to me, you know, the classification system is a real pain for us, too. <laughs> it gets in the way of us being able to do our jobs more easily. It kind of bogs things down. It slows things up. I mean, what's the case for not over classifying as a way of making our government run more efficiently? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, even 50 years ago, there was a high-level Defense Department committee. It was made up of people, all of them with uh, the highest-level clearances. You know, some of them had been Defense Department scientists and so on. And they came to the conclusion, several of them, that there was more to be gained than lost if they adopted this policy of radical transparency, if they return to this older American tradition. Mm. Another example would be how some of the nuclear physicists who worked on the Manhattan Project, they estimated that it would have been 18 months sooner that they would have been able to deploy the first nuclear weapons if it hadn't been for the extraordinary secrecy surrounding that project. So just imagine what the Second World War might have been like if the U.S. had atomic bombs in 1943, right? Like before the Normandy landings. So yeah, absolutely. It also makes it harder to share information with our allies, Right. And there are many examples of this, you know, where we'd like to share information in order to win allies and organize more effectively against our adversaries. And just to take like kind of the nitty gritty in the day to day, when you talk to people who have to work with classified information, what they'll tell you is that one reason why so much information gets classified at the highest level is that it's just easier You know, if you're composing an email, even if you're just writing to a colleague about meeting for coffee, if you think that at some point, maybe in exchanging those messages, you might eventually mention some classified program, it's just safer just to classify even that first message as secret. Mm -hmm. Easier for you to just sort of not have to worry about it. It it is, yeah. Yeah. But but then it, it makes it much harder decades from now when people have to go through and review it all. But even, you know, in the case, just composing an email... You have to now portion mark. It's what they call, you know, marking each paragraph as to whether it's secret or top secret. Every single paragraph you have to write, you have to indicate the classification level. Like, just imagine how cumbersome that is and how much easier it ends up being just to classify everything. Wow. Yeah, I I really I can't imagine. Classifying everything gets expensive fast. All those emails about lunch need to be stored and reviewed. And it's not clear if our classification and security clearance systems, as they are right now, even protect the information that should be kept secret. There's an office, it's a tiny office called the Information Security Oversight Office. And every year they put out a report where they try to estimate how much money the government spends on secrets, how many secrets they're generating, and so on. What they do is they go around to all the departments and agencies and ask them to come up with numbers, like how much do you spend on background checks? How much are you spending on like physical security, whether we're talking about fencing or retinal scanners or whatnot? Mm. And that number has been going up and up and up. And so the last figure that we have, 2017, it was $18.4 billion, And that was almost double from five years before. Now, here we are, it's more than five years later, and they tell us they can't even count that number anymore. They can't even track how much they're spending on secrets. But even five years ago, that number, 18.4 billion, that's 50% more than the budget of the Department of the Treasury. So is that spending ballooning because of just how many new artifacts we are creating or is something else becoming more expensive in this process? Well, some of the most expensive stuff is how they hire contractors, you know, data scientists and engineers. A lot of the spending, especially after Edward Snowden and his revelations, a lot of it was for IT, like information technology. But when you think about it, it doesn't matter how much money you spend. It's an impossible problem. According to a report submitted to Congress in 2019, there were more than 1.2 million people who were granted access to information classified as top secret. That's a lot of people. And a recent incident highlights the challenges this poses for security agencies. A major leak of classified documents, revealing details about the war in Ukraine, about troop movements, military capabilities, and Moscow's spying activities. The suspected leaker is Jack Teixeira, a 21-year-old IT specialist with the Massachusetts Air National Guard. 
According to court documents, he was disclosing classified information on online forums for months. He's now being charged under the Espionage Act. This was somebody who had top secret, you know, secure compartmented information clearance, which is one of the highest levels of clearance. You know, he would have been investigated for months. They would have talked to his friends and family and so on. And somehow they didn't pick up on the fact that this guy wasn't trusted by his classmates. They started to fear him. Right. So you could just imagine, you know, how many more people might there be, you know, with that level of clearance Mm. leaking documents for all kinds of reasons. But, I mean, an, an interesting yeah. example of this, just to, sorry to jump in there, is how I, I noticed, at least with the news of this most recent leak of information, mm-hmm. how news outlets seem to figure out and pinpoint or at least publicize a name of a suspect before we heard it from officials, right? Yeah, I think that has to be the most embarrassing aspect of all. <laughs> I mean, it was because it was uh, it was uh, behavior was was visible on the internet, right? There's just more out there, like you said, that yeah. is in plain view. Yeah, that's right. It, these documents were out there for months, for months, and it was only you know when it showed up in the pages of America's newspapers that intelligence agency began to act. Even then, even though we have 18 different intelligence agencies. It took the New York Times finally, you know, to walk up the driveway and find the culprit, right? They arrived before the FBI did. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a real, you know, to me, a wake-up call, you know, not only in terms of, you know, how this system is broken, but also how it is that our government is even losing the capacity to regain control, right? Even when there's really obvious leaks, how it is that even journalists seem more capable in this case of, of identifying the people who are putting this information out there. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some other leaks specifically. I mean, when when classified documents leak, what does it mean for everybody involved? I'm thinking of people like Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning. What does the leaking of classified documents mean for the people doing the leaking in these cases? Well, unfortunately, like for lower level people, the consequences can be incredibly severe. This is true even when people are trying to expose wrongdoing. I mean, people like in the case of Snowden, of course, you know, they have to go into exile for years because he would almost certainly be locked up in a federal penitentiary if he came back to the U.S. But apparently there are other rules for other people. I think most people now think it's unlikely, you know, that President Trump, you know, is going to face legal consequences for his reckless disregard for effectively stealing documents that belong to the American people and potentially endangering, you know, the people whose names might have appeared in those documents. The documents that have turned up at Mar-a-Lago you're referring to, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, you know, even if they weren't classified, I think a lot of us would need to care if we care about our history. Because after all, like, these are the records by which historians and journalists, too, and everyday citizens might one day have known more about the everyday doings of the Trump administration. But it's just one example among many when senior officials, and especially presidents and cabinet ministers and so on, how it is they often get away with mishandling communications, and sometimes, Mm. in the case of Trump, actually destroying them. Mm. You know, so unfortunately, there's a real double standard. Like, lower-level people are rarely the source of leaks. Almost all the leaks tend to come from the highest levels. In many cases, it's because the president himself has decided that he wants to put out classified information in order to spin a story and make the president look good. Right. That is the sort of kind of uh, strategic leaking, I guess you might want to call it. Do whistleblowers leaking classified documents achieve the kind of radical transparency that you're saying is needed? Well, they can. And I think Snowden is a good example because there are many people who are furious with Snowden who would now admit 
that if it hadn't been for those leaks, that we would never have had that conversation. People would never have had the awareness of the extent to which the NSA was conducting mass surveillance of American citizens. Now, on the other hand, there are cases, and I think WikiLeaks is one of them, where Chelsea Manning you know, leaked a quarter of a million diplomatic cables and put a lot of lives in danger. Like If you search through those cables now, if you look for phrases like to protect closely, you'll find there are dozens of people whose only offense was that they spoke to an American Foreign Service officers. Mm. And we're talking about Human Rights Act activists and journalists and so on. So, you know, I'm not in favor of leaks per se. I would point out that in some cases, leakers are able to expose criminal wrongdoing. But when it's done recklessly, you know, with reckless disregard for what might actually be inside those communications in the case of WikiLeaks, then a lot of people's lives could be at risk. You know, I'm thinking about what you mentioned about how we're making so many digital artifacts now that what's increasingly happening is someone is just deciding to toss them. (laughs) We're no longer even talking about whether to classify or declassify. In a lot of cases now, some things are just being tossed away, right? That's right. That's why, you know, what worries me, maybe even more than the culture of secrecy, is the culture of destruction. You know, because as an historian, like, I had hoped that eventually, eventually, you know, even if it was hundreds of years from now, that eventually we could begin to put together a more complete picture. But what you're finding out is that the volume of information, the amount of records produced every year, the two billion email every year that the State Department releases, for instance, you find out that the National Archives is completely overwhelmed. The budget for our National Archives has been basically flat for 20 years. Mm. There are fewer people working at the National Archives than worked there back in the 1980s. And so, for example, when they begin in reviewing the first electronic records going back to the early 1970s from the State Department, they realized that it was impossible for them to review every record or even browse through them. Instead, they ended up deleting millions of these records sight unseen. I mean, you're a historian. What what does this say about our narrative ability to tell a story years from now? Well, we can also see the impact it's having on the production of scholarship. For example, I work with some students and we analyze the research that historians were producing about the history of American foreign relations. And we found that when you go back, say, to the 1970s, lots of historians were writing about the 40s. And when it was in the 1980s, they were starting to work on the 1950s and so on. So there was this kind of march through time, right? But that march began to slow and eventually stopped when you got to the history of the 1980s. And what you're finding now is that very few, relatively few historians are working on the history, say, of the end of the Cold War or the period following during the Clinton years, whether it's about the breakup of former Yugoslavia or or what have you. And the reason is that there are relatively few records for that period that are now available. Far fewer records are getting declassified now than were being declassified even 20 years ago. And so what that means is we're just not going to have the history of our times, not unless we can figure out some solution to this problem. So what are you proposing as possible solutions to the problem? How do we fix it at this point? It sounds like it's uh, it's a problem of needing to change the incentive, right, for wanting to classify or declassify things. Well, it's a whole set of problems, so there's no one silver bullet. But one thing that I think is crystal clear is that we're going to have to begin using technology to grapple with this. The people who declassify records, they're still working as if it's the 1950s. I mean, they're still reviewing these things like page by page. It's an impossible task, especially when you consider how few resources are being devoted to it. So we're absolutely going to have to begin using AI to 
rapidly sort through all these records and prioritize the ones that really have to be examined closely. Mm. But at the same time, there's no substitute for providing the adequate resources that the National Archives needs to do their job. Because ultimately, it's the National Archives that's going to preserve our history. Right now, the National Archives has a budget that's smaller even than the amount of money the Pentagon spends on military bans, right? I mean, the National Archives has a budget smaller than the cost of, of half of one stealth bomber. So it's not something you necessarily think about very much. But when you think about it, these are the people who preserve our heritage, right? And if they're not given the resources they need, then you can just forget about the idea of having a complete account, a history of the kind of covert actions and the covert operations that we've been talking about. You also describe in the book a number of meetings that you've had with various government officials in heavily safeguarded buildings, as you've described, winding hallways and places in D.C. that none of us can imagine. And you talk about getting a lot of pushback in these meetings when you try and lay out the argument for why more documents should be declassified. Why is that? What are you hearing from people? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, what you hear from people, especially people in the most senior positions, responsible people, you know, especially those people who come to Washington not having spent their careers, you know, the Pentagon or the intelligence community, and they will tell you that a lot of this stuff shouldn't be classified. And the estimates range from 50 to 95%. And you also- 95 is a huge 95%, amount. 95%, yeah. that's right. Yeah. You know, so you would say in data science, that's a lot of false positives, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in this case, what they'll say is, you're absolutely right. We could use these kind of techniques to rapidly review and release information that really doesn't have to be kept secret. But no, we're not going to spend any money on it. Because what they'll say is that this is just not central to their mission. You know, the intelligence community is all about protecting national security. They actually were more interested in using this technology to automatically classify information. Mm. And when you think about it, in a way, it makes sense. It's a little perverse, but because they spend so much money keeping secrets, they're interested in a technology that can help them produce even more secrets. And I think ultimately, as much as we need technology and we need the resources, ultimately we need Congress to begin passing laws, right, to begin holding the executive to account. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Matthew Connolly is a history professor at Columbia University and the author of The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets, available on Apple Books. And if you're enjoying this show, In Conversation, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. 